galvanizing, dude. Like people think it's kind of like paint, only made of metal. It's not. I'm John Cadogan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously, or you can just click the car that's up there now, dude. During the recent biblical floods here in the knee of Sid, Lake Titiwawa formed in the bottom left-hand corner of my trailer. And I friggin' hate that. As uplifting as Lake Titiwawa generally is. So before things percolate and a zombie apocalypse develops, perhaps it's time to take swamp draining action. goes wild. Drainage problems solved, so that's always nice. However, in the lead-up to this uber-glamorous assignment, I did mention to a dude or dudette in passing that I was going to do this, and the first thing out of his or her mouth was, make sure you paint those holes, because otherwise your shiny new trailer will rust. Face palm, dude. Like, where do you start with people such as these? Especially if they should know better. Lest you are one. Let us repair to the fat cave. The better to understand the kooky code of galvanising and how it manages so effectively to pop a cap in the grill of rust. Do you ever feel kind of like that when you have some minor win in the driveway at home? Like, I sure as shit do. It's exactly like that. The picture in my mind's eye. The cheering, the beach, the bikinis, the bubbly. It's all there. Mankind rejoicing with you during a rare absence of Murphy's Law from projects such as these. You might as well bask in it, you know, however fleetingly. Now, look. The reason we're talking about this today is I get a plaintive call for assistance on this like once a week on average. Like there's a paint chip that you need a scanning electron microscope to see on my new car. Can you launch the QRF stat? I kind of get it because if you're older than about 1995, cars routinely dissolved 
in front of your eyes. They just fell apart moments after collecting them from the showroom floor on day one. Rust was a cancer that attacked by stealth, like it metastasized under the paint and under the radar. And before you know it, Red October would make like a colander and you'd be on the hunt for Dr. Kevorkian and a brand new car. Repeat. This latest call for assistance is from a dude named Dan. I took delivery of a new Pajero Sport Exceed 14 days ago when washing the car four days ago I noticed a rust spot on the roof. This area of rust is less than one millimetre across and appears to have penetrated the clear coat and base layer. I can provide imagery if you're interested. Frankly, I'm not, Dan, but I am obliged to ask. Would that be like satellite imagery, mate, or magnetic resonance imagery, or just, you know, some blurry, shaky shot in bad light from your iPhone? In any case, no need, dude. I have taken this up with the dealer, and while they forwarded this claim on to Mitsubishi Motors Australia Limited, they stated, they don't like my chances, as it may have been damaged from a rock and cars can rust quickly, which probably violates reasonable durability. Am I pushing the proverbial uphill? So if you don't want the upcoming beer garden applied engineering dissertation on exactly how, when, where and why galvanizing kicks rust in the nuts in your car and elsewhere through the developed world, Here's the short version, okay? I wrote Dan a prescription for some chill pills on this, like take two, dude, and if that doesn't work, go down the pub and talk to the chaps. Because modern cars are galvanised. They don't rust because of the cathodic protection. We'll get to that. Rust is chemically impossible in this condition. There might be the smallest amount of inconsequential surface corrosion, but it won't grow because it can't. This quote from the dealer about cars rusting pretty quickly is uninformed bullshit. They don't. They don't rust, you know. Look at the clock on the wall. You can never rely on a dealer giving you an honest answer. The guy talking to you in the service department is not there because he trained as a metallurgist but always secretly yearned to deal with people like you over their new cars. And now his dream is a reality. So he sets his dialogue by the clock on the wall, which is always bullshit o'clock. What you're looking at here is a trivial paint defect on the roof, okay? You've got to get the dealer to fix it in conjunction with a local panel shop at no cost to you if you're lucky, and then just forget all about it because it's inconsequential. And bear in mind that some bilateral goodwill is going to be required here. Like, if they're assholes about it, you cannot prove that that chip did not occur after you took delivery. So try to be diplomatic about it and see what the dealer says. And if you're standing there calling each other, fuck off, like this, then just go to a panel shop yourself and get some touch-up paint made up and DIY a solution and then henceforth get the car serviced elsewhere. It's a purely cosmetic defect, less than one millimetre in size, okay? And you have to stand on a ladder to see it with a magnifying glass in one hand if you're over 50, and it's under the friggin' roof platform that you fitted to the car. That was in the letter, but I just chose not to include that in the bit that I read out moments ago. Probably not worth drawing blood over, in other words. Now, in case you're interested in the historical context of all of this, Galvanizing gets its name from 
18th century necromaniacal Italian sick bastard, Luigi Galvani, who was sitting at the table skinning a frog one day. I'm not making this up. Because his wife enjoyed whipping up a little static electricity by rubbing frog skin. Still not making it up. He notes, dead frog's legs start twitching as if in life after making contact with two dissimilar metals, in this case, copper and iron. And he goes, golly gee, Jim Bob. I'm paraphrasing because I don't think there were rednecks back then officially. Golly gee, Jim Bob, there must be a shitload of electricity down there in the frog's legs. Still paraphrasing, but still not making it up. He put this down to his whack job hypothesis of, quote, medical electricity, not making it up, which was quite big back then, incidentally. He kind of thought the frog might be the Duracell copper top of amphibian power sources, leg-wise. Not making it up. He called this animal electricity, and he decided the post-mortem twitching was a result of electrical fluid in the frog's nerves. <sighs> Alessandro Volta, the guy they named potential difference after, Voltage, called the twitchy frog thing galvanism. So Galvani was kind of in need of counselling and incidentally dead wrong and hardly the patron saint of frigging frogs. And he was a man in a wig, which I guess is allowed, but would not be my initial preference vis-a-vis -vis being remembered by history. But in spite of all of this, which I did not make up, we named one of industry's most widespread and effective protective processes after him anyway. Hashtag humanity. It was actually a French dude named Stanisay Sorrel about 47 years later who figured out that coating steel in zinc actually protected the steel. He was granted a patent on the process and he decided to call it galvanization after the historic frog jolter. <laughs> Go figure. As your next Prime Minister, of course, one of my first acts in Parlement will be to introduce a bill that removes the word galvanization from the entire English language to be replaced, more correctly, by sorelification. This will be celebrated by gazetting a new public holiday, National Frog Apology Day, just a little step in the direction of making Australia less shit. <laughs> I can agree. We'll turn a bunch of lights off and, I don't know, refrain from rubbing further frogs up the wrong way or something. I'll get my people to work on the details, but the legislation is a done deal. I think I've got the numbers. In order to earn your PhD in the beer garden physics of galvanization, just look at it like this, okay? If paint is your childhood sweetheart, then galvanizing is a three-way. In addition to the barrier kind of protection, which is also offered by paint, you get this patina protection, which we'll get to, and the electrolytic protection, which makes all the news about galvanizing. And let's not forget, you know, this is a case where you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have your three-way and your childhood sweetheart as long as you do them in the right order, so to speak. Like galvanize first and paint second. Bob's your mother's brother. Every car you see that was manufactured this century out there on the road is treated in exactly this way. Three-way first, then sweetheart. So, just to state the bleeding obvious, all right? 
galvanizing functions as a barrier. You've got your steel, whatever, and it's coated in a layer of zinc. There's your galvanization. The zinc forms a barrier and it deprives atmospheric contaminants of access to the steel. And let's not forget that's so important because anything you look at that's galvanized, you know, a light post or Armco railing or one of those dirty big towers that keeps 132,000 volts and human beings quite separate, which is fairly important. All of those things, it's the steel doing the hard work carrying the loads. And steel's a great material for that. It's got lots of strength and it doesn't cost all that much. So it's really good, except it rusts. It's got this proclivity to fall apart in the presence of atmospheric contaminants. And essentially, when you go out to the Pilbara or something and you look at a st at an iron ore mine, it's essentially just a big bowl of rust and they dig it up and they unrust it and they get steel out of it ultimately, out of the other end of the steel mill and then the atmosphere goes to work on it and attempts to turn it into iron ore and that's no good because it loses its structural integrity and it's fairly useless for keeping the power lines up there or keeping your car watertight or whatever. So. The galvanizing forms a great protective barrier, just like paint, except it's UV stable. You don't have to worry about galvanizing falling apart under the influence of Australia's harsh UV radiation. So there's that. But then there's this secondary protection, right? You get your shiny new galvanized whatever. You go to the steel merchant, you buy a piece of water pipe. It's really shiny. And then it goes over time, that dull gray color. And chemically, they're really, really different, okay? Because the dull gray is a patina of corrosion, if you like. But it's an important kind of corrosion because it seals the zinc away from the atmospheric contaminants. It forms a really tight, like impermeable, air-proof and contaminant-proof barrier on top of the zinc. So when you're driving through the country and you see a shearing shed out there on the way to Dingo Piss Creek, yes, you look out there, it's that dull grey colour. You're not actually looking at the zinc. You're looking at a whole bunch of oxides and carbonates and whatever, okay? So think about the patina protection like this. You've got these atmospheric sort of contaminants. You've got your CO2 and your water from rain, and you've got your oxygen, which is about 19% of the air you're breathing right now. And they all go to work on the zinc, and they form these different compounds on the outside of the zinc, namely zinc oxide or zinc hydroxide from the water or zinc carbonate from the CO2 in the air. And those things combine and they form a really, really thin layer of patina-like protection over the zinc. So you got your steel, then your zinc, then your patina, which is kind of air and water tight. And really interesting there, it's self-healing. Okay, so if you brush some piece of galvanized whatever and you expose the shiny zinc, over time it'll just self-heal with the patina, which is quite unlike paint when you think about engineering your own defect in paint. It's going to remain there. And not only that, corrosion is going to get in, travel underneath the paint like some friggin' cancer, and before you know it, there'll be a bubble the size of whatever, and you'll have some sort of corrosion disaster to deal with, just like a car from the 1970s. 
Oh, before I go, <laughs> there's one other thing about this, right? They're different materials. There's shiny zinc on your new trailer or your new whatever is really different to the patina. So if you're going to paint these things, what you've got to do is you've got to prime them differently. With the shiny zinc, typically one would use an etch primer to etch down into the zinc and give the new paint a nice foothold. Whereas if you're just painting the patina, most paints will self-prime into the patina. So that's worth bearing in mind as well, particularly if you're painting the shiny stuff because you don't want to go and laboriously paint something and then have it all flake off because, hey, you didn't prime it. And finally, protection number three, which gets all the run, cathodic protection. You've heard of that, or you've heard of sacrificial anodes as well. They're the same thing, or at least they're flip sides of the same coin, because dissimilar metals like zinc and iron, in this case, the zinc on the galvanizing and the iron that's holding the world up and you're trying to protect it, is in an environment that's intrinsically corrosive, right? So it's got water and oxygen and it's got some electrolytes. Like there may be actual dingo piss, which is quite a strong electrolyte now that I think about it. There might be something of that nature or, you know, some kind of slimy, corrosive contaminant. Acid rain is really popular in the cities, right? So electrolyte and water with dissimilar metals essentially makes a battery, or at least it has an electrochemical reaction. And you can get super technical about this stuff, or at least high school technical, or you know, first year university technical. And you've got your cathode and your anode, you've probably heard of those terms. They relate to this. The cathode gets protected because the anode sacrifices itself. Zinc is the anode, iron is the cathode, and you've probably also heard of the redox reaction or reduction and oxidation. The way to remember this stuff, like the way I learned to remember it at university, was that red cats are positive and oxidation occurs there, okay? So your red cat, the cathode, is your iron and it's the positive side of the quote-unquote battery and your zinc is like the negative side, okay? But what really happens here is when you're in this electrolytic environment, the water kind of splits up into these things called ions. You get a positive ion of hydrogen and a negative hydroxide ion. And they react with the zinc to form zinc hydroxide, basically, which is part of that patina. And it's the sacrificial aspect of what the zinc does to protect the steel. It's falling on its sword, if you like. And the steel cannot corrode because the zinc's too busy. The zinc is the friggin' girl who can't say no, whereas your iron is quite chaste in this environment, okay? And while this is happening on the other side, then you've just got hydrogen and a couple of electrons combining to form hydrogen gas, but I wouldn't worry about the risk of explosion or I wouldn't try and collect enough to fuel up my hydrogen fuel cell vehicle because the amount of hydrogen produced over time is really minuscule and it just happens to complete the reaction. But anyway, the iron is fundamentally protected at these localised sort of sites at this deep granular level of the thing that you're trying to protect and it can't participate in the reaction until the zinc is completely sacrificed. And this is how they stop ships from rusting, and this is what protects modern cars. It's exactly the same process, and it doesn't matter if the sheet is electrolytically plated with zinc or it's hot dipped. And the shiny silver stuff is hot dipped, whereas the gold-coloured stuff is electrolytically plated. The only difference in a chemical type context is that 
the thickness of zinc is bigger when you hot dip it and that affords you a greater level of protection over time. And the final thing here, I guess, which was what the frog jolter was alluding to, is that metals are dissimilar and they call them, uh, they, they rate them in terms of their activity, their electrochemical activity. So the most active common metals electrolytically are magnesium, zinc and aluminium, and then you get iron. So if you put a more active metal in touch, if you like, with a less active metal, the more active metal sacrifices itself and the less active metal is protected. So in, this, in the case of straight galvanization, the zinc is more active, the steel is less active, the zinc sacrifices itself, the steel is protected. And if you've heard in Australia about those metal roofs and one of the brand names is Zincaloom, what they do is they combine zinc and aluminium and they use it to protect the steel sheet that gives the roof its integrity. It's the same process and I think they add aluminium probably because it's cheaper than just going with holy zinc, okay? And it lasts for years and years and years and obviously it's painted as well so out there in the UV the paint breaks down and cosmetically that looks a bit shit, but the protection is still absolutely in play and will be for several years. So if you're worrying about that with your roof, for example, it might look terrible, but you've still got several years before you need to do anything about it. And all I'd do is, you know, irregularly look out the window and see if you can see any orange rust forming. And if you can see a little bit of orange rust, that is absolutely the time to act as provided you don't want to replace the whole roof, you know, you could paint it at that stage and still get several more years out of it before any perforations actually occur. So when you look at these materials, okay, you've got your magnesium, your zinc, your aluminium and your iron. Tin's pretty interesting, okay, because tin can. Completely different kind of protection and it relies on complete integrity of the tin as an envelope around the underlying steel which gives the can its integrity. And they've also put these, I don't know if you can see that there, but they've also put these ribs in the tin to give it greater structural integrity for less thickness of material. But if you go and empty this, you know, you, get, you make yourself a nice Napolitano, whatever, this evening, you get the tin, cut out a bit of the sidewall and just nail it on the fence and leave it there for a fortnight, see what happens. And then look around at a piece of galvanized steel and look at the difference because in this context, nailed up on the fence with the ends of the uh, bit that you've cut out uh, exposed to an electrolytic environment, you've got steel is the more active metal and tin is the less active metal, so the steel will start sacrificing itself to protect the tin and it'll actually accelerate the destruction, if you like, of the steel. So it's important to get the metals right. And when you look at something uh, important like one of these babies, like a little tiny podger that you might use to extract information from someone, or, you know, you could use it to undo a nut as well. The, um, the bottom line there is it uses chromium, which is way down here in terms of its activity. And that's why rust forms on chromed spanners. It's really durable, it's a great surface coating, but as soon as you get a defect there, you will start to get rust in the manner of, you know, burrowing under paint or something, because that's just how the activity series plays out. And I guess the final point I would make about all of this galvanizing business is, one of the things about paint is it relies on a 100% sort of 
integrity mechanism. You paint something and as long as the paint maintains its barrier against the environment everywhere, then the steel will be fairly well protected. And that's how cars from the 70s used to roll, okay? As soon as you get a little tiny defect, like a stone chip or something, corrosion would burrow in, go under the paint, it would blister up, and then before you know it, you'd be at the panel beaters and you'd be getting a piece about the size of a football field replaced or something. Whereas with galvanizing, minor defects in the surface really don't make any difference to the protective mechanism. So little stone chips and little tiny scratches, even if they get through the paint and through the patina and through the zinc and, un and expose the underlying steel, there's still a great deal of localised protection on offer. Today, of course, galvanising is ubiquitous. It's actually quite difficult to walk out the front door without tripping over something that's galvanised before too long. All those road signs held up on galvanised posts and the Armco railing designed to catch Rowan Atkins the next time he drives his next supercar. All those 132,000 volt power transmission towers and maybe even the roof over your head at home and or of your shed in the backyard. Galvanised steel lasts for decades in Australia, all the way from the coast to Dingo Piss Creek. So what does this mean for you? Well, you can fabricate galvanised steel without worrying too much about corrosion because even if the steel is exposed in minor ways, you know, exposure from cutting and drilling is still electrochemically protected by the zinc. And that means that those two drainage holes I just drilled in my shiny new trailer do not need some sort of protective treatment. I just want to show you one other thing here, lest you doubt what I say about galvanizing. And hey, it's okay to doubt what anybody tells you online. And what you should do is look for evidence either in support or to dispute someone's claims. And I did this ghetto repair of my big heavy duty trolley the other day because the wheel bearings fell apart. And then I went out to Bunnings and I couldn't find a frigging wheel with a bearing in it that fitted the axle diameter. So then I went 100% ghetto and I put these dirty big wheelbarrow wheels on my trolley and I thought, hey, might as well make it extreme sort of thing. But I had to dodgy up an axle. So to dodgy up the axle, I used a piece of water pipe. Now this is one inch nominal bore water pipe, okay? It's galvanized, as you can see, and obviously got a thread man manufactured in one end of it there, which you can probably see up close right about now, I hope. Let's check out Sony's autofocus technology there. I'm not sure how that's working, but anyway, you can see that, right? And then I had to get a one inch uh, spindle, like a stub axle off the end of the pipe. So I, the only thing I had lying around in my ghetto down here was uh, this piece of threaded rod, which is about a billion times stronger than it needs to be in the context of the trolley. So I cut up my piece of water pipe and I welded my stub axles in place, and I had this left over and this left over. And as you can see, like the end of the pipe is fully exposed to the elements, and it's pretty dark in here. Like in th these bits left over were stored in the most damp part of the fat cave, where all the Ming moles hang out. It's very moist in there, and no corrosion whatsoever on this bit of the pipe. And it was weeks ago, like it was more than a month ago that I did this. Okay, you can see that even if it's not focusing properly, I'll try and hide behind it here. 
to, to see whether we can focus. Yes, I think so. Anyway, you can see that, and you can see where the thread is cut as well. There's not very much corrosion on that, and I don't know how long ago the thread was actually cut in the manufacturing plant where they roll out the pipe, you know, and that thread is absolutely cut into the pipe. It's not rolled over the top, okay? So there's no galvanizing where that thread is, and yet there's bugger all surface rust forming on that the underlying material is mild steel, whereas just a few inches away where my offcut of uh, threaded rod was, has been stored, check that out, right? That is a fair old amount of surface rust just there. And you can see that over time it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And this is basically untreated mild steel, but you can probably see there's a bit of grease and stuff like that. So there is some atmospheric protection from the oil, grease, whatever they used when they rolled the thread into this. And that essentially is the difference. And if you multiply that by 10 years, the thread would be unusable here, whereas this piece of pipe would just look like a slightly less reflective version of itself. And the ends might have a slight patina of rust on them, but no significant corrosion. So that would be the minor defect protection of galvanizing that electrolytic reaction is just preventing the steel from taking place uh, in any corrosion reaction in any significant way. So there's your proof. And if you look around at pieces of galvanized whatever, Armco railing or that that's been fabricated, it's had holes drilled in it, you know, the galvanized posts that they use to hold up the street signs like stop signs and give way signs, they've all had holes punched in them after the galvanizing process and they're all not falling apart thanks to rust. This kind of protection is the complete opposite of painted steel, where the most minor defect is a pathway for contact with oxygen, gas and water and some slimy dingo piss-like electrolyte. And when that happens, rust forms under the paint and before you know it, there's a rusty blister down there and it's the size of a ripe frigging zucchini. This is kind of important for every car owner to realise because modern cars are galvanised, which explains the huge reduction in automotive rust over the past 30 years or so. Modern cars still rust ultimately, but they rust a lot slower than older cars, which were not galvanised. And essentially, we've got the Japanese to thank for all of this. See, back in the 70s and 80s in Australia, the car market was essentially American. It was all Ford and Holden, obviously, which means we did business the way America did business. And America was quite happy to throw owners under the rusty bus after just a few short years of rolling around. And hey, that was quite good for business. But then along came Japan which has, incidentally, rather a lot of salty coastline relative to its land mass, and it's quite electrolytic. So they started introducing galvanised cars in America, and they didn't rust as much, and consumer demand therefore forced the hands of the American big three automakers to introduce galvanising, and the rest is happy, rust-free-ish history. Fast forward to today, okay, and all new cars are galvanised in most developed markets globally, even Australia. So, no stone chips and minor scratches to worry about. They're not the problem they once were. You can repair them for aesthetic reasons if you prefer, but there's no need to obsess about it from a rust protection point of view because of the magic frog jolting action of cathodic protection. Yes. 
Major damage, of course, where lots of zinc actually does come off in the manner of frog skin in the Galvani household on a Friday night after a few Chiantis. That's going to rust, okay? So you should neck a few scoobs one day and then decide to buff your fine wanking chariot with a 40-grit flap disc. It's definitely going to rust. Particularly if you proceed until the battery in your angle grinder sucks on a dry tank of electrons. Like, that is going to be a problem, dude. The best corrective measure there, aside from jumping in a time machine and telling your parents not to breed, is to prime it all up with a zinc-based primer and then repaint, preferably with a pressure pack can. I'll probably do a feature on you in... 4x4, 24-7, you friggin' legend. And finally, that'll get back. I always get some Canadian in the comments at about this point who tells me, once again paraphrasing but still not making it up, you don't know shit, you brain-dead kangaroo abuser, they say. It's absolute zero here in winter. They salt the friggin' roads, you might care to observe. My car disintegrates, therefore, before my very eyes. Or... Words to that effect. And to that I would say, yeah, dude, salt is a powerful electrolyte in water, almost as harsh as dingo piss itself. It accelerates the reaction, and once the zinc is consumed, it gets in on the steel, and then it's all over. So, in highly electrolytic environments, the countermeasures are A, paint the galvanisation to form an additional barrier to slow things down, and B, wash regularly. To remove excess salty electrolyte. Do that, dude, from Canada. Approved. Also a good idea if you think driving your CMD spec 4x4W chariot through seawater is a good idea. It's not. Cars used in these corrosive environments are certainly going to rust a lot quicker than those that only ever run around somewhere like New Mexico, in America, or most of the environment here in Shitsville, especially away from the coast. In drier places, especially cities, the main attack on the zinc is from acids that form from sulphur dioxides in the air because pollution, acidic rain, basically. Did I forget anything? That's the question, isn't it? If you're a material scientist or a metallurgist or an industrial chemist or an engineer, please let me know in the comments. I would definitely welcome your input there. Also keen to hear from you if you are essentially unqualified but you suffer from the Dunning-Kruger effect. That's always quite entertaining in the comments too and I generally look forward to that. It must be so liberating now that I think about it to be so emphatically dumb to think that you're actually a genius. Imagine what would happen to the comments section if a keyboard operation license was actually IQ means tested. At the very least, it would prevent a lot of cabinet ministers from tweeting. I'll work on that one after we get Frog Apology Day up and running. <laughs>